Hi, I'm Elizabeth, and I'm an Allen team member going into Al-Anon. This open letter will hopefully plant the seeds for some very needed Al-Anon members to sponsor Allen groups. Being on the World Service Allen Committee, I have the unfortunate fact to tell you that many potential Allen members are told that they may not begin a group because there is no Al-Anon member willing to sponsor the weekly meeting. With this happening, we are losing these young people who are reaching out for recovery. Believe me, you have nothing to fear in sponsoring a group. All you need to do is to listen and tactfully guide. We run our own meetings so we can grow, but we need your program, guidance, support, and love. The only difference between Al-Anon and Alateen is that we Alateens eat more junk food. Yet we share the same steps, traditions, concepts of service, pain, and joy. At our meetings, you'll learn a lot as we learn from Al-Anon. If you feel you've matured faster from growing up, then I can assure you that you'll, that you'll love Alateen's function because it will fill that void you thought was gone forever. That's how I felt. You'll better understand what it is like to be a child of an alcoholic, and you'll get to see how we too are affected. I have been co-sponsoring in my group, giving back what I received from the program. Remember, although nearby Alateen's may not show how they feel or how they love you, know that it is like our closing statement. Although you may not like all of us, you'll come to love us in a very special way, the same way we already love you. That's how it really is. We desperately need sponsors. Otherwise, our non-membership will decrease if these Allerton groups are not nourished. The recipe, one spiritually beautiful Allerton member added to a beautifully bubbling Allerton group once a week for one or more hours equals recovery for all. Within the past year, we have noticed an increase of adult children sponsoring Allerton groups. So easy does it, and maybe your courageous stand will start a great chain reaction within Al-Anon for Alateen. Just think what it would be like if you had no meeting to go to. Wouldn't it have been beautiful if you had Alateen while you were growing up? So, take that first step and let it begin with me, love and fellowship Elizabeth. When I walked in the door this afternoon, I was told that I would introduce the Al-Anon speaker, and I panicked because I thought, I've never met this lady. But you know, I have met her because this is the language of the heart, and we all have the same bond that brought us together here, and that's the disease of alcoholism. And there's just some people you meet and you connect with at the heart, and I truly believe that's why they call it the language of the heart. So I'm real anxious to hear Barb's story. I'm going to from Arkansas, and I'll turn it over to her now. When I attend a group in Gravit, Arkansas, we meet every Thursday, and we have about uh, three regular members. In fact, not long ago, we were going to our VR meeting in, in Fayetteville, and there were three of us in the car, and I said, you know, if we had a car race, we'd wiped out our group. <laughs> but uh, we're right on the Missouri, in case you don't know where Maysville is, we're right on the uh, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri line. We uh, actually live in Oklahoma. 
pay taxes there, and I worked in Jay, Oklahoma. Uh, the nearest post office in, is in Maysville, and that's all Maysville is, the post office and a handy shop. And uh, so that's where we get our mail at Maysville, Arkansas. And then we bank in Missouri, because the nearest bank is in Texas City, Missouri. So I, uh, I got Alan on friends in several states there. In fact, there's a lot of Missouri girls in South Dakota from Noah, Missouri, so we our group and we visit their group. But uh, it's, so not, it's nice to be here. This is a, a large city and the, the accommodations are wonderful and I appreciate the committee inviting me and there's a lovely fruit basket and all the friendly people here. Uh, everyone seems to be having a ball, you know, whenever uh, we started off with a meeting last night and the speaker was talking about having all this fun. You can see a lot of crime, but then there's a lot of young people here and they kind of liven things up for, uh, I would say we've seen the citizens. I'm so glad I get to be a senior citizen to all these discounts. But I really like it when they say, Oh, you're not really that old, right? <laughs> kind of hurts my feelings if they don't. <laughs> but um, it is nice to be here. And uh, Vicki did, we kind of got thrown together here real quickly this afternoon. But, uh, and Adriana made a beautiful talk. She's a beautiful uh, young lady, and I really appreciated her story. In fact, I believe her story and my story are just alike. It's just that I was a little older and before I started learning the things that some of these uh, allergies are learning. And it's wonderful to see that they have a place to go for recovery at such an early age. It doesn't keep them from being an alcoholic if we, uh, like I say, we're breeding them, you know, since it is a uh, hereditary, but uh, it does give them a, a, a sense of uh, belonging and a place to go and they know what it's all about. Um, I'm supposed to tell you what it used to be like and what happened and what it's like today. When I was a little girl growing up, all I wanted to do was hurry up and get old enough to graduate out of school and get married and play house, because I always liked to play house. So uh, when I was about 14, 15 years old, uh, my dad took me to fight and he started talking to me about uh, what you're supposed to do when you become a teenager. He said, now there's certain things you don't do before you get married or the boys will write your name on the pool hall bathroom door. And uh, and you can't do this until you and you can't get married until you graduate from high school. So when I looked back, I said, "That's probably what's wrong with the youth today. There's no more pool halls." That was birth control back in the early fifties. <laughs> I said that at a convention a few weeks ago, and the speaker got up calling me, and he said he was in the restroom somewhere in Alabama, and he saw see Barbara Conley or something in the bathroom. <laughs> But anyway, so that, that was my goal. I just couldn't wait, you know, to hurry up and grow up and, and get out of the house and, and make my own way. And I had this family and had some children, and I, I, I was just so excited about this. Of course, I knew there were still certain things I couldn't do when I got married. So as soon as I graduated, which was in May, I got married in August and finally got to do what Daddy said I couldn't do when I got married. And uh, that was a big disappointment. <laughs> They always say, you know, uh, imagination is greater than realization, and uh, needless to say, that marriage lasted about 14, 15 years, and we, we parted. But I think his father must have told him the same thing. And I, I just never could get, I couldn't get this guy how to play house. Now, I know how to play house because I watched how they did it in my home. My father goes off to work, and he comes home, he gives mother the check. He does things every evening with the family. He's always playing with the children. He's making us swings or he's building us little toys. We've always, we've always been things together. 
And I, this fellow just didn't understand. He was always going off doing his own thing. He never included the children or I. And he had all these hobbies, and he was always spending his money on all these other things. And I thought, you know, this is just not working out. And I tried to explain this to him. We'd have all these problems, and he just, he just would not learn. So, uh, you know, how I was grinning brown on men. You know, if you can't fix it, you just get rid of them and go find someone that you can fix. So I could see right away this guy was not going to be fixable. So after 14 years of marriage, we decided that we were incompatible after three children. Uh, by that time, I had a uh, daughter 12 and another daughter 10 and a little boy about two. So uh, we did get this divorce. And I was living in Oklahoma, uh, near Tulsa at that time, working for a state uh, rehabilitation agency. And uh, so I had to go to a conference, a rehabilitation conference in Oklahoma City. Now, just here I am, I'm single now, and I'm looking for this, this perfect husband and this perfect father for my children. I knew there were certain requirements this time. I'm older now, and I know exactly what I want this time. I want someone who uh, will love these children and want to be a father and stay home and spend time with them. I wanted someone who had a good job, who'd be financially secure so I wouldn't have to work. And I wanted someone who'd want me for a hobby and who'd stay home. And I guess what I was looking for was a rich sex maniac. <laughs> so, the, you know, I was at this conference, and uh, my boss walked in. There's this young man walking with him, and I'd say this was about 28, 29 years ago. And uh, I asked who that was, and they said, well, that's Charlie Farmley. And I thought, well, I know that person. I've been writing letters to him. He's uh, directly admission to this aeronautical school in Tulsa, and I've been writing letters to this man. So uh, we started visiting. We were sitting at the same uh, banquet table, and we were visiting. And uh, somehow I, I always ask everybody I'd meet, I'd look for the ring, and I'd ask him for marriage. And next question, do you have any children? And he was divorced. So uh, we visited all evening, and I, I kind of liked the way he sounded and the way he acted. So uh, several times we met uh, each other, and uh, my boss told me, he said, you know, I believe Charlie may have a drinking problem. Well, now, I've never been around drinking. I didn't know any more about drinking than I did about sex. You know, I just, this was back when you just didn't know things. What, they said sex was recess or something, or sex education was at recess or whatever. You know, he just didn't talk about those things. And so... Uh, and I didn't know anything about alcohol. We didn't have alcohol in our home. Uh, and in my first marriage, if we ever had any extra money, we would go out uh, on Saturday night and have some drinks and, and dance. But I didn't like to be around anyone that was drunk. I did not like drunk because they couldn't dance and it wouldn't be much fun. So we just never did, you know, alcohol just never was that important in my life or people that drank. Now, I loved to be where there was the dancing, but I didn't want to be around anybody that was out of control. And I could take one drink, and if I felt, if I began to feel it, that's, you know, I didn't want to lose control, so I, I didn't particularly like alcohol. I loved the mixer. Uh, in fact, I realized that today, you know, I love the margarita mix and all these things, but I didn't like the alcohol, because that ruins your drink. So, in fact, when I talked about this, and I said, um, you know, if I take a drink, I just feel like I'm losing control. And he said, yeah, but when I take a drink, I feel in control. Now, well, if it made me feel in control, I'd be drinking today. I need something to control me. But, um, so I, uh, I thought, well, I, you know, Charlie never acted drunk. Now, that evening that we went out, probably in Oklahoma City, he did drink a lot, but he wasn't drunk. 
So we began to date, and uh, he always had this bottle in his glove box, and it was uh, called Peppermint Snop. And he said it was a mass freshener. <laughs> and uh, his breath always did smell good. In fact, one time, finally, I wised up, I think it was something he had in there, and I, I took a sip of it, because he would take a sip of it. I thought, well, I'll try this. And it burned my throat, and I said, boy, sorry, I don't know how you drink that stuff. It sure does burn my throat. Doesn't it burn yours? He said, now, Barbara, that's one of the things I like about you, is that you don't say anything about my drinking. And I thought, well, I won't say anything else about this until, you know, later. And <laughs> that was beginning to get pretty serious, and I, he was, too. And uh, he was very fond of these children, and they, they were really, really fond of Charlie. So we decided after about a, oh, maybe about a year of courtship that we would get married. But, um, like I say, this drinking, I noticed that Charlie drank a lot. He drinks, like, he can only mix drinks like this in a glass like this. Well, I remember all these small glasses most people drank out of, but he was never drunk or out of control. So as long as he wasn't out of control, I didn't think he had a drinking problem. Well, we did get married, and I moved to Tulsa. He said, what I think I'll do is I'm going to quit this job at Spartans, and I've got this land over on the Arkansas, Oklahoma line, and we'll build us a home over there, and we can raise these children. I'd like to have some children of my own, and uh, since we had never had any children, it would be a good place to raise these children, and I probably won't have to drink so much if I can get away from this pressure of this job. Well, that sounded fine, because we hadn't been married about a week when he got drunk, and I, it just terrified me. Now, I couldn't imagine him being just out of it like he was out. Now, I trained my life and Willow to care of this fellow, and he's gotten drunk, you know. And I was terrified. So anything that was going to help us with this drinking, uh, I was all for that. So we commuted from Tulsa to Maysville every weekend, and uh, Charlie would build on his house, and I would go to the, he'd send me to the McGurl line to get his booze, and he'd go over to the Arkansas on the yard and get his lumber, and... Uh, Drink and hammer. Because most people measure their homes by board feet. I would measure ours by six packs. <laughs> well, we finally got that home built, and in the meantime, we've been married a couple months, and I finally did get the present. So, oh, he is really delighted. He's going to have a, a child of his own. So, uh, he wanted to get this house finished before the baby was born. So, we did just barely get into this home, and we had this beautiful daughter named Charlotte. And uh, the kids were delighted. They got to live on a farm, and uh, we built some chicken houses. Uh, so we, could, we raised broilers, and because Charlie had cattle. He's not only an alcoholic, he's a workaholic. And so we had cattle and chickens and hogs, and if there was ever a time when we weren't pigging or having calves or were out of chickens or something, he would start some other uh, enterprise. He was always into something. Uh, and so uh, anyway, we moved to this farm, and uh, now I know everything is going to be wonderful. And we built this, the chicken houses and uh, got these, all these animals around here. And Charlie began to disappear on me. He would go to feed the hogs and he wouldn't come back till the next day. And uh, I had to get my binoculars and watch him. I know most animals, I don't know how many are in here, but there was just something about if I could just watch him. I got to catch him, I got to know what he's doing. I've just got to know. So I'd get my binoculars, you understand? I'd get these binoculars, I'd stand up the kitchen and I could see down over the creek. And there's the children wanting to dinner or something, you know, and I'm, don't bother me, I'm busy, you know. I, he's going to get away from me. If I don't watch him, he's going to get away. And sure enough, he's seen, I, I could see where he had his bottle hid there in the tree trunk over there and one over there, you know, I could spot all these things. And sure enough, he'd get away from me, and then I would be furious. And 
And so things were getting a little out of hand. You know, he started doing all these strange things. And of course, when you married a sex maniac, you know where he's going when he doesn't come home. The poor fellow, he did all the things I imagine he did, he would have to have been some kind of a superman. But uh, I, uh, I knew that things were getting a little out of hand. You know, I, I did some strange things myself to get even. And now I couldn't even tell him I was even. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, that was a stupid thing to do. You better not do that again. I remember there's been, I'm sure none of you have ever done this. Uh, if I could get out of the house before he got in, I'm going to show him what it's like to wonder where your spouse is. So you jump in the car and you go out on the road and I stick you on the road and I'm going to make him wonder where I am. And the coon hunters are going up and down the road and I'm sitting here and it's freezing cold and the windows are standing up and I can just hear those fellas saying, who is that? Well, isn't that Charlie Palmer's wife? No wonder he drinks. <laughs> and uh, then you come in and you say, man, is he really going to be mad because he's going to wonder what I've been up to and he's passed out drunk and doesn't even know it. <laughs> then you try to drop little hints, you know, about what you're doing. You could care less if he had a few moments of peace and he could drink without anybody bothering him. He had this problem. I thought he had this uh, compulsion to drink, and I had an obsession to stop him. And I would try all these little tricks to stop him. And the children, I'd send them out to hunt the bottles. He was always hiding bottles around. I don't know why there was this need to hiding bottles unless it was so he had them around when he needed them. Uh, I, I, it's not, I don't need to know why, but anyway, he always had these bottles hid everywhere. So the kids, they would always get out and find bottles. They'd come running and tell me where they found one out under a rock at a chicken house and what were they supposed to do with it. I'd dump them a lot of times and fill them with water. Or whatever, just to show them a little notes, little nasty notes. And you're busy. All the time you're busy. <laughs> I, you know, I was obsessed with alcohol too. In fact, when I came into Al-Anon that first step, admitted I was powerful over alcohol, you know, uh, I thought, well, I don't drink. And they told me, said, Bobby, you're powerful with what alcohol does to someone else. And I, I know I had, a, I had a problem with alcohol, but it was someone else was drinking. So uh, I kept doing all these weird things, and uh, things were getting crazy and crazy in our home. And I've heard so many of the Alateens talk about the damage that the non-alcoholic in the home does. They understood Charlie, you know, their daddy. Uh, but they didn't understand their mother. You know, Charlie could come in and uh, say hi and pass out, and they knew what was wrong with Dad. You know, he's drunk. But Mother, I was in there maybe cooking dinner and singing a little song, and he comes in, and I can tell he's drunk, and I start slamming the cabinet doors and cussing at the kids. And uh, I was never physically abusive, but I was certainly verbal abusive to my children. And so I can see the damage that I did. And I didn't know that until I, I heard an Alpine talk. I'd been in on about a year when I heard little Alton talk, and I thought, oh, my God. You know, I'll never be able to make amends to these children. In fact, I still try to make amends to the two older ones that were living through all this violence, this confusion, and this horrible home. I felt it was a horrible home at that time. Well, anyway, things are getting pretty bad, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Charlie was getting finally where he didn't leave. He just drank and passed out, and I thought, you know, the guy's just miserable. He can't, doesn't seem to be very happy in life. Uh, might as well get rid of him. I'd only filed for divorce three times trying to get him to sober up. And it worked. You know, when I'd filed, he'd sober up. And he promised that he'd quit drinking. And that's all I wanted to hear was that he could quit drinking. So he'd stay sober six or seven months and then he would get drunk again. Well, I knew what to do. I'd just go back to jail and file again. And each time I'd have to go to another lawyer because I was so embarrassed. Because I'd tell him what an honorary SOB he was. And uh, he was terrible and did all these horrible things. And then I'd call him up and, 
an hour or two later and tell them, never mind. You know, I think we're going to work it out. So I'd be so embarrassed I couldn't go back. I never had the nerve to face them. I'd have to just call them on the phone and tell them I'd decided to drop it. And I kept saying, Bobby, you know, I knew these things weren't right. I knew I was doing crazy things, but I couldn't stop. You know, every time I'd, I'd get these stupid ideas and I'd have to try. So after about the, uh, between the second and third divorce, I could see how miserable Charlie was. I couldn't live with him. I couldn't live without him. I didn't want him, but I didn't want anybody else to have him. And uh, so I decided, uh, you know, when he comes out and passes out in that pickup, I could probably run a hole around here. I've heard of people committing suicide by asphyxiation with the vehicles. I figured I could, a way I could do this, and I wouldn't have to file for this divorce and split everything up. I'd just get it all. And then I, and I was laying there thinking how much, you know, it really made sense, and it scared me. You know, I thought, Bobby, you're really going over the edge to even think a thought like that, and you better get some help. Well, my sister had been visiting me from Tulsa, and she brought me some literature from the central office there about AA and about Al-Anon. And back then, that was in 67 and 68, and uh, no one, I've never heard of Al-Anon. I've heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've never heard of Al-Anon. And so I read this, uh, the AA literature, and sure enough, I could see Charlie had a drinking problem. And he had, I could identify him with this uh, AA stuff, but I, I, I didn't understand this Al-Anon philosophy about letting him go and letting him do what he needed to do, and it's a disease, he can't help it, and get off his back. And I thought, if I don't stop him, he's going to just die, you know. I've got to keep doing these things to make him stop. But they said that, you know, he, he, uh, he has the right to do this and get off his back, and I, I just did not buy that philosophy. I never saw anybody get better by you not interfering. You know, I just thought I had to keep... You know, I had to do this thing. So I didn't buy that philosophy, and I set it aside. And so when these thoughts about this getting rid of Charlie came to my mind, I knew then that I needed some help. So I uh, made a contact in Silent Springs to this lady, and they had given me this uh, person's uh, name, and so I contacted her. She Silent Springs about uh, 30 miles from Maysville. So I went over and talked to her, and she said, I understand how you feel. I know the loneliness and the frustration. Now, no one ever said that to me before. No one ever understood. Every time I'd start complaining about Charlie, they'd go, oh, he's not that bad. Not, well, they just don't know. They don't live with him. And I'd complain to my dad, oh, well, he doesn't seem that bad. Well, I look back today, and I'm always teasing. I said, yeah, you're afraid I was going to come home with all four of those children. <laughs> so when she said that, I thought, you know, I found a friend, someone who really understands. So she told me about the meeting that they had on Friday night. So I um, told her I'm going to this meeting. She gave me another lady's name that I could go and visit in Decatur, Arkansas, and go by her office and talk to her, and she'd take me to that meeting because this, this one I was talking to would be out of town. So I by her office, and she came bubbling and bouncing out of her office. I was she can be made an alcoholic and look that happy. And uh, she uh, talked to me a little bit and said, Now I'll pick you up Friday night right here and meet me in Decatur, and we'll ride together. So between that was about a Monday and Friday, we, uh, Charlie and I had another one of our little arguments, and I filed for divorce again. This time I was going to stick to it. I remember reading in that pamphlet about when you make a decision, you stick to it. So I filed for this divorce, and this time he had to be moved out. He couldn't talk me out of uh, dropping it. So he moved out, and so this friend uh, ready to call me on Friday morning to see if I was still going to meet her in Decatur on Friday night, and I said, no, I don't need to go to Al-Anon. I've gotten rid of the problem. And uh, 
she just kept on on that man, wanting me to go to that meeting. She said, now, Barbara, they tell me that uh, even though you're not living with an alcoholic, you're probably carrying the scars of living with an alcoholic, and you really should go to Al-Anon. Well, she was so adamant about getting me to that meeting, I just couldn't understand unless it was a, because I didn't know what it was, and, or maybe it's a membership drive or something. She's going to get a prize for bringing a new member or something. I could not imagine anyone being this adamant about getting me somewhere without some, some motive. So she was such a nice lady, in fact, she is my sponsor. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, to please her, I will go. And this was in uh, May of 1968. So I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. And, uh, and that was my home group for years. And then it was customary in our area that when there's a new member, they go around the table and each one of them tell a little bit what Al-Anon is. And then this one lady described to me the disease of alcoholism about, you know, that it's something that he was, uh, the physical allergy he was probably born with, that he had no, he didn't have any choice over that part. And that uh, it's a uh, physical allergy, uh, it's a mental obsession, once he takes that first drink, it does something for him that he remembers and then he wants it again when he's having problems or whatever, and then he starts the craving, and they went on and described this. And I thought, you know, maybe that's what he does have. Because uh, I know Charlie had so many good qualities, maybe... Maybe I ought to try a little harder. In fact, well, the thing that really scared me, they said, if you don't get your life straight, you have to turn around and marry another one. And I, oh, my goodness. And I mean, so many of us have seen that happen. You know, I thought, my word, I, I'm, I certainly don't want that. So I thought, maybe I'll take, better take these marriages out a little more seriously. If it is a disease, it says, you know, through sickness and health, but, uh, maybe I ought to try a little harder. So I made up my mind, I'd go to at least six meetings before I'd make this decision about really leaving college. As I asked myself, I don't know what to do, whether leave or stay. I've had him moved out and I just don't know what to do. They said, Barbara, we don't tell you what to do, but uh, we, we suggest you come to six meetings and work these steps in your life and things will get better for you. So I went home and called Charlie and I said, well, I think I know what the problem is. If you'd like to come home, uh, you, you know, you're welcome to come back. Well, and naturally he was thrilled to get back in his home and with his children, and, and I say the children have all been fond of Charlie. Even with the drinking, the, the children were always fond of Charlie, so he was always there, even when he was drunk. He was uh, always good at his kids. So Charlie came home and I started going to meetings, and that didn't please him too well, because he didn't know where I was going, he didn't understand. And then when I told him what, what it was about, he said, he said I'd tell everybody in town that he had a drinking problem, and I didn't need to tell him it was obvious. Uh, of course, those of you might not have known, I certainly told them because I had to explain my behavior. You know, why would you be out on the road in the middle of the night unless you're living with a drunk? So I had to kind of drop a few hints to people around them why I did these things. And uh, in fact, I had to make amends to a lot of people. There was, uh, I never could figure out who he was with. That's what I just couldn't stand not knowing. And so I would call. I only knew three or four couples around that area and, and people because we moved from Tulsa down in, in this little area and it's, it's all rural. So I knew these three ladies that were friends of ours, and I, I'd call these three for these homes, and uh, I knew it was one of probably that Charlie knew, and it's the one who wasn't home, she was it. You know, if she wasn't there at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night when I was trying to find Charlie, and, and she wasn't home too, I thought, that's the one. And uh, I just, I finally, I said, I had to make some amends to some of these people for calling at midnight. You have to come up with some of the strangest things when they answer. <laughs> and I thought, I well, what's that recipe that you had the other day? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
So I continued to go to meetings, and Charlie was a little aggravated about this, and thanks for quit fighting. You know, and they, there's nothing worse for an alcoholic when you get off his back. You know, didn't have anybody to argue with him anymore. And uh, I just, they told me, they said, well, Bobby, you don't have to argue. I said, well, you know, he's saying this, he's saying that. He said, well, just because they call you a chair, that doesn't mean you're a chair. You know, you don't have to pay any attention to this. So uh, I just, you know, got off his back and let him drink. In fact, they told me, I said, well, if I don't interfere, he's going to die. And they said, Barbara, he has the right to die. And I thought, that just doesn't make sense. So, but I did get off his back, and of course, his drinking did get worse. And he was dying. And, uh, but I continued to go to my meetings. I, there was just something there, and I think Adrian explained it. You know, we feel like somebody finally understands me, and they care, and they made me feel so welcome. And uh, it, it felt so good. And so finally, back um, after about four or five weeks, you know, Charlie was getting worse. I remember telling him, I said, you know, it doesn't work. He's getting worse. This, this, this program just does not work. I just knew that if I started changing and trying to work these steps and stuff in my life, that things would get better, and they weren't. They said, well, Barbara, we didn't tell you Charlie's life would get better. We told you your life would get better. And that was about the years that our One Day at a Time book came out in 1968. That's when I first started going down on there wasn't all that much literature, and this little book had just come out, and I thought, well, I'm going to do what that book tells me. Every day I'm going to do that. That's going to be the script. I'm going to be the actor, and God's going to be the director, and Charlie's the bad guy. <laughs> so I would try to do whatever that page said to me to do that day, you know, treating with dignity and respect. Oh, you know, if you're nice to an alcoholic when you're drinking, you know what they're thinking. I'd already moved him out in the utility room, so I wouldn't have to be around him. And they said, detached. So I just moved him out there. And I was supposed to see his quick up where he kept his bottle. And uh, I thought, if I act nice to him, he's going to want to come back in the bedroom. And I didn't want that. But they told me, they said, Bobby, you don't have to like him, but you're going to have to run to love him as one of God's children. So I, I'd been going probably maybe four or five months of it at that time. And I can remember one time Charlie was sitting in his chair. And I thought, oh, this kid, I was going to have to be nice to him, and I can't stand him. And I don't know, I was running through a drawer, and I happened to find a letter that he had written to me when last we got married, and it was the sweetest letter, and he was a very, he's just an adorable person, and uh, when he's not drinking. <laughs> so I read this letter, and I thought, you know, that's the Charlie that I met and fell in love with. And I, I, I kind of could remember a little bit how I felt then. And so with those feelings of how I felt then, I walked by them, and I could reach out and I touched him, pat him on top of his, I walked by him, and he looked up at me so shocked, because I hadn't touched him in a long time. And they explained, you know, there's no, no one that feels more in love than an alcoholic. And so I, I, I that helped me, you know, with it being into Charlie, and at least I was able to reach out. But I kept on going to these meetings and trying to do the things they said, and finally Charlie did, uh, he decided he was gay. Tyler A himself. He got a little serious about where I was going on this Friday night. And so uh, he started going to AA. Well, he sloshed around. It took him about a year to get his first year, and his body day was in October 69. So we were going to our meetings, and I tell you what, I thought it was bad during drinking, but during those first years of sobriety, it was bad, bad. Here I'm trying to do what they told me to do. I'm trying to learn new actions and new thoughts, and it's not easy. And Charlie was trying to do the same thing. We just didn't want to speak. Uh, I still had some resentment over some of the things he had done, and he, he was, didn't like me all that well either. That's why I remember him telling me, to Bobby, you're just going to have to try to think of one thing that you like about Charlie. 
you want to feel better about him, and I'd think, and I'd think, and I'd think, and I'd Finally, I, it occurred to me he was neat. Charlie was a very, very neat person. He always puts everything up, and he's very neat and tidy. So I'd think of that. Like I told him that one night we landed in bed, but I said, Charlie, they already told me I had to think of one thing about you I like. If you want to like me, maybe you should try to think of one thing you like about me. Can't you think of anything? He was quiet, but he just know. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, this is the way we go to those meetings, you know, just sitting, I'd be on my side of the car and he'd be on his, and I'd always try to sit back next to the door, to that folding door, trying to see if I could hear what he's saying in there, find out where he was those nights when I couldn't find him. And uh, finally, I, just, I was working on my steps, and I'd taken my fourth and fifth, and I was ready to start these amends, and was sorry was the last on the list. So I thought, well, I, going home and I, I was feeling pretty good about this, and I thought, I'm going to make my amends, and, and, and he can make amends to me, and, and this is going to clear everything up, and we're going to be happy with it. So you know how we plan all these, I'm going to say this, and he's going to say that. So I was uh, going home, we were riding along, and I uh, said, Charlie, I, I want to apologize for acting the way I did you drinking, and uh, these last few months, and I'm going to start trying to be better, and I really want to apologize. And so then I waited. And he looked over at me and he said, you damn well, should be. <laughs> now, if you know, there's somebody here that knows so. So anyway, we, this is the way it went along. Well, I got real active in service, and uh, that kept me busy. I, I was always afraid to say no. I, I didn't. I was always afraid that, that I'd had a lapse and go back to what I used to be. And if there's any fear I have today, it's this fear of going back to what I used to be. I have more to lose today than I had those first few years. In, uh, I've got about 22, 23 years now. 24, I, I they go so fast I lose track. But I've got a lot more to lose today than I had those first few years, and I don't want to lose it. I don't want to go back to but anyway, I got realized he'd been service, and in fact, I got, that's how I got involved with some of the people around the world. Several, many years ago, I was invited up here to the delegate to talk at one of the areas of assemblies, and in just different uh, occasions, I've had a chance to be around some of them as well, Al Anon, and some of them are very dear to me. And here I, I was doing all these things, and uh, busy, 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 and trying to raise these children. In fact, one time, we were going to meetings every night. We only had one meeting at our group in Siloam, but there was a group, one that just started in Old Missouri, one in South City, Missouri, and one in Jay, Oklahoma, so we would go to all these meetings every night. And then I told you, I said, I feel guilty leaving these children so much. You know, I, I feel like I ought to be homeless and some. He said, Bobby, how kind of parents would we be if we weren't going to meetings? In fact, when I'd skip a meeting and I'd be coming in and start slamming doors a few times, the kids said, Mother, this might be a meeting. Well, the little daughter that Charlie and I raised, I knew we, I had these three children that got married, and then I had the, the baby that Charlie and I had, and of course I, I didn't, when I first started out on, they were doing this experiment, trying to, to see if it was hereditary and all this, about the disease of alcoholism, and they were, that was just coming out, and finally it proved that it was hereditary, just like diabetes or cataracts, which I've inherited, and different things that you can physically inherit from your peers and from your parents. And so, um, with Charlotte, I thought, you know, there's a possibility she could have been married this disease, so I'm going to have to fix her so she won't be an alcoholic. So, uh, well, I remember one time when she was about 12, she'd gone over to the neighbor's house, and uh, they had some booze there, and she came home so I might bring you some beer, and how she liked it, and I said, oh, Charlotte, and you should have messed with that stuff. Now, if you've inherited the physical allergy, and there's a chance that she could have, you could start a 
unfortunately, drink at an early age, and I just don't think I could live to another end of our family having to use the alcoholism. In fact, it was so funny, my son, we used to have so many things at our home, because we from the rural area, in order to have any social life, we always had chili sappers or something, and the groups were small back then. And we would have a big uh, chili supper at our home and bring in couples that we were sponsoring. And we were always, there's always activities going on in our home with uh, a lot of fun and, and fellowship. And we'd take them off to conventions. And our kids were just raised in conventions. They were two young ones. In fact, I saw some ladies today at one they didn't have lung problems from all the smoke they inhaled. But they were raised this way. You know. And my son, when he was about seven or eight years old, he told me he wanted to go up and be an alcoholic like his daddy. You know, because that was going to be fun. When he was a teenager and started having some problems, I thought, I thought you were joking. I didn't know he meant it. But, uh, so anyway, here I'm warning his daughter, you know, that there's a possibility she can have a physical allergy and I'm going to fix it. So we started, I just started doing all these things so that she would feel like she belonged and that she wouldn't have to have these insecure feelings. And, and she was one of the, she was a real bright student, had excelled in everything at school. And they had all these special classes because of her high IQ and, you know, it was not going to be any problem with this child. Until she was about 14 or 15 and she'd been a big part home and the grades in the afternoon were bad. She started skipping school. She started having this weird uh, behavior. You know, she just came home with bad, just terrible, bad news. And I began to see little things. And, and back, about that time, Carol Burnett had come out with this article, Do you know what your children are doing? If you looked in their rooms, I started looking in their rooms and I found these. I little pipe. I don't know anything about drugs either. You know, I was pretty naive. I didn't know anything. In fact, I wouldn't want I wouldn't know marijuana if it was in the flower garden and this. But one year I was planting some tomato seeds to put out and thought, said, oh, mother, I like to grow plants. I mean, I'd like to grow some in my window. So I gave her some of my seeds, and when her plants came up, they didn't look like my plants. <laughs> and so I said, sorry, that's what I think it is. Get it out of this house. And she did, never, even when she got off the field bus, she'd go down on the North 40 and disappear on us. I guess she was checking out her crop or something. But, uh, we started having all these problems. And uh, finally, when she was, I, I quit my job. Uh, I, I got a job after, right after I got in town. I finally got a job. Things were kind of crazy around our home. And Clyde always told me he didn't want me to work, but I think he wanted to get me out of the house, too. So he said, go ahead if you want to. So I finally found a job at the postal company, and that's been in 1969, so I've been there all these years, too. I, I, I've had a lot more consistency in my life since I've been in there now. See, I took my job so I could film and watch this child. You know, she's going to get in trouble if I don't stay there and watch her. And I've got the picture. So I became obsessed with Charlotte. Knowing so well what I was doing, I knew better than you. But I, I just, there was no way I could see something. You know, morally, the Bible says you're responsible for your children. The sign said, hey, your kid's screw enough, you better straighten her out. You know, the school calls you, you better do something about your child, she's not here at school. I go to, I'm on the interview, Dr. Dupin, your parent. I heard an Alan speaker say about a year ago, she said, you know, we would rather feel guilty than feel powerless. And, and I'm with a child, I believe that's, that's the way it is. And so I, you know, I was finding all these things that, that she was doing, and, uh, so here, I, mean, I was laying out traps trying to, so I could hear her. She slipped out at night. We had a neighbor call us one night about midnight. She said, you know your daughter's going out every night. But we didn't see her out on the road. She said, the only reason I'm calling you is because I have some daughters of my own and I didn't want to know. And sure enough, she was telling me, didn't know she slipped out of her room. 
And in fact, Charlie said, uh, he came in and told me about the phone call, and so he said, let's go see if we can find her. And we started driving up and down the same roads I used to drive up and down looking for Charlie. They say things go full circle. So, um, uh, one morning I went into, I had quit my job, and it was in the summer between the 10th and 11th grade, I believe, and I was in the time for many years. And I went in to call for breakfast, and she was gone. She was gone. And I had no idea what to do with a runaway child. You know, you read about these things, but you don't know when it happens to you. You just don't, well, it's never going to happen to you. I didn't probably be married to a drunk. You know, that was not one of my, you know, I just didn't read about that in the book. Uh, didn't know anything about uh, what to do. So we finally waited about noon, and I tried to call a few of her friends, and they had no idea. And we went to the proper authorities, and in order for them to look for uh, reported a missing child, she had to become a ward of the court, so we signed all these papers. And, and for a week, I wondered where Charlotte was. And of course, I saw all these horrible things that could be happening to this daughter. And uh, it just seemed like by about the fifth or sixth day, I just couldn't stand it. You know, I'd say, why me? You know, why me? I've done everything. I've turned my life in the middle the care of God, as they told me to do in this program, and this is what I did. And I was so angry. And it's like, well, why not you? You know, happens to a lot of people. What makes you think you'd be immune to problems out here? Besides, there's nothing happening to you. You're doing a good job. You keep going to your meetings and do what you need to do to straighten out your life. And it's sort of, it's sort of to me. It's like, and she really is my child. And you're telling child, I said, is this my reward, you know, for doing all the things I was supposed to do? Like, God was punishing me. And he said, Bob, if God didn't reward or punish, you do good, you're going to feel good. You would do good. You do that when you feel good. And you shot it, it's not, it has nothing to do with God as far as the, the punishment and, and the reward that you are thinking of. So I, you know, I tried to keep saying this over and over. I knew that she was in God's hand and, you know, I was powerless. And it may be that I never see this child again. And so I had to, had to give up. And I believe that that's when I finally really did turn my life in the middle to care God. When you, when you see no way out and you've got to accept it because you've nothing you can do about it, you just give up. And so be it. You know, whatever, whatever happens, I don't, know that death is in God's will, but he does allow these things to happen, and I was going to have to let whatever had to happen happen to God's sake. In fact, I remember uh, just before she ran off one time, I was talking to her and told her then I was going to get off her back, and I said, you know, there's maybe some things that you're going to have to do in your life. I said, your father, and I'm going to have to get out of the way and let it happen, and not knowing that this is going to be on down the road. So, uh, Charlotte, uh, finally they did find them, picked her up in Tulsa, and uh, she became a ward of the court for several years. She was in and out of all different types of institutions. I would go to visit her and some of these institutions where they had a rock that night. I would come home crying, and I said, you, Charlotte, you help all these other people and all these alcoholics, you sponsor them, you're taking care of you can't do anything about our daughter. And I would just be beside myself. And he said, well, Barbara, she doesn't want help. So, uh, finally, uh, uh, she got out of it, finally got out of this one institution, and of course we're going to give her, get her custody again. And, and so Char- Charlie asked Charlie, he said, Charlotte, what do you want to do? And she was 16 then. And she said, I just want to be free. I said, Charlie, she's been trying to be free for three years, and you've been locked up. And he said, well, Charlie, if you think you can take care of yourself, 
then you just go right on and do what you think you need to do. You call it every week to last, and wherever you are, so I know you're all right, or else the courts are going to step in. They don't know you're living at home, and you will become a ward of the children. So she, she did, and she took off, and she went with a friend, and uh, and she was been uh, down about a year or so, and had been living in Tahoe. And we went out to the field one time. Just, she didn't know what time was set since she'd get so much, you know, with, with all this. And so we went out to the field, and I could tell that uh, we were making a few men's in uh, with her. And because uh, I'd already known, learned in Alan on you, I can't, you can't not love your child, no matter what they're doing, you love your child. You know, that's what, when I took my fifth step with this person, and they told me that God loved me no matter how, what I'd done and how I, you know, the kind of person I felt about myself, that God loved me just the way I was. And that's the way a person, you know, parent feels about their child. You love them just the way they are. You may not like some of the things they're doing, but you never, uh, you never cease to love them. So finally, when the child had been out there a while, and we'd been out there to visit once, and she called us and said she wanted to come home. She thought she'd done all the crazy things she wanted to do, and she was ready to come home. She was ready to me in. So she came home, and uh, in that meantime, she'd taken her, uh, got her diploma uh, by GED, and, uh, came home and got married. And that good man said about a year his young man committed suicide. Uh, evidently they would probably take me in. And uh, so she was uh, about a year before she married again. And today she's twenty seven. I had to stop me out of that. Today she's twenty seven. A beautiful young lady, has a job at the same company that I'm working for, secretary children. The complex manager has a, ba- a, grand- a, ba- a beautiful baby daughter, two years old, that we just idolize. And, and to my, I know she doesn't use drugs, and if she does any drinking, I don't know about it. And uh, she just, you know, I can't believe that it turned out all right in spite of me. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's one of those miracles. Because uh, it, it doesn't always happen that way. You know, I just had to, uh, when I let God take care of it, it didn't happen the way I was glad it did. At that time, I didn't know it was going to happen anymore. Now, my sponsor used to tell us that Bob, Father, God does not do, nor allow to be done, but you wouldn't do yourself if you knew the end result. Now, we don't know the end result. I, I don't know how to describe the feeling I have today about the way our lives are. You know, it's that. Carl and I have got a wonderful relationship. We both have a, a 12-step program that we can use in our home. Back up, if I had me for the traditions and the concepts, I don't know where our marriage is going to go. You know, we finally had to have some autonomy in our marriage. I'll never forget the time I came home with them saying the concepts. And I came home and I said, uh, I started visiting once in a while with Carl. And he said, you know, I haven't to get to with me more lately. And I said, Carl, there's a concept that says the minority has the right to be heard. He said, now, I don't know if that's what it is. I said, you know, it doesn't mean going to change anything. But I do have a right to be heard. But, you know, I don't always have to agree. And so there's lots of these things in our in our 12-step program. If you don't touch all these bases, you know, there's, there's three parts of this program uh, for a full life, and then that circle is going to encircle it. You know, you don't really get it all. And I want it all. I still want it all. I've heard us talk about this. We want it all. So... In fact, you know, I found out that, uh, you know, God's not going to change the world, but he's still going to change me so that I can accept the world. I had cataract surgery about five or six years ago, and I told you I had, they told me at Liverpool General, 
And they said, the first thing you're going to notice is colors. Well, I wasn't colorblind. I knew they had to be and colors. And he said, you want to know the colors. So when I took my patch off the next morning, I looked at my flowers that were hanging out on my porch, and they were the most beautiful red flowers that I'd ever seen. I could not imagine anything being that beautiful and that vibrant. Then I'd cover up my good eye and look at it through the, the one that still had the Cadillac, and they were just faded out colors. And I thought, all these years, that's how I've been looking at life. Everything I was looking at wasn't right. Not that it was, you know, everything was right out here. I just didn't see it right. And it's like a 12 steps. It's like having a spiritual awakening. Now, it doesn't change anything out here. It just changed how I look at everything out here. Today I've had both cataracts in me, so everything I see is like it all be. Today I've had a spiritual awakening. Now, today I, I, I can... I can change how I feel about what I'm looking at. It may not change like this. I found out today that I'm drawn to different circumstances. I don't get into as many bends as I used to get into. Uh, I don't have as many problems because I'm not looking for problems. I'm not looking for anybody to fix. And I know people around me are delighted to fix. Of course, I still have this tendency. I kind of like coffee the way I make it. Somebody else I don't like and they make it too strong or too weak. So I always make the coffee every night before I leave from work. Everyone thinks I'm wonderful because I'm always taking care of everybody. They think I'm doing all these things for them. I'm doing for me. I found out when I was taking my inventory, I thought some of these things I did, that was an asset. It was a character defect. <laughs> I wanted everything my way. If you want it your way, you just do it. You do it all. And so I'm always busy doing all these things so I can have my way. So I, I'm still working on a few of these things, but... I'm getting better. Uh, I have to say, life uh, is so comfortable. And maybe age has a lot to do with it. You just don't have the energy to take care of as many things and as many people. But uh, if it was any better, I don't think I'd extend it. And I thought, you know, it's all because I married an alcoholic. I thought that was the worst thing that could have ever happened to me. So nothing is all bad. Um, if I could just hang in there long enough, you know, but uh, it's just, it's going to get better. And that's what they used to keep telling, but I want it better now. And so now just take time and patience. And that was, one, I, that was not one of my expectations to me. When they say patience, that was somebody in the hospital. You know, I didn't know what the word patience was, but I'm learning patience. Uh, I want to thank everyone for being here today and, and, and with love me speaking and I sharing with you. And I'm looking forward to the rest of the conference now that I've gotten my part over. Thank you.